0: any point in time, a marketer should be able to answer the following question off the top of their head, which is, if the board gave you an extra $100,000 tomorrow, how would you deploy those dollars? And I'm always surprised when marketers don't have an answer for this. It's grounded in a combination of past performance, strong rigor around metrics, and importantly, a strong relationship and alignment with the sales organization. What does the sales team get excited about? What kind of programs do they really lean into and they want to follow up on and chase after?
1: Hello and welcome to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Rover president at Blast Media, and I will be both your host and your bartender today. My guest today is Lisa Ames. She is the CMO of Norwest Venture Partners, and we're talking today about how to operate on a lean marketing budget, and more specifically, if you fell victim to budget cuts this year, which many of you did, how do you reallocate that? And how do you make the case for more budget when things start to go better? So if you'd care to grab a drink and join me as I chat with Lisa Ames. Hey Lisa, welcome to Sats Huffle. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. I'm excited that you're joining me. We've been working over the past couple of weeks to nail down our topic. But um, I'm pumped today because we are talking about advice surrounding working on a lean marketing budget and specifically for our listeners who are mostly SaaS marketers. Some of you are feeling the pain right now of very drastically reduced budgets. So Lisa's going to help provide some clarity around that topic. But before we dive in, always want to uh, see number one if our guest is sharing a drink with me today. Lisa, are you joining me?
0: Absolutely, Lindsay. Uh, Here in my Norwest mug, I've got a margarita with a little spice to it. Love uh, so it. Want to thank you for having me and maybe we can just do a little ching ching of our glasses. Absolutely. Cheers.
1: <laughs> I um I'm also Margarita-ish. I'm a uh, doing a topo chico seltzer. We actually have our all hands meeting right now in our uh, office today, so we have about yep. sixty of us here, which is awesome. I can hear the music and happy hour pumping downstairs.
0: So okay. <laughs> everyone else is going.
1: Also, <laughs> Everyone else is also doing this. So apologies, listeners. Well, Lisa, tell us about you first. I would love to know how you got into your current role. So, kind of, what was your journey here? And then, secondarily what your role entails as CMO at Norwest Venture Partners.
0: I joined Norwest in 2020, so at the start of the pandemic, after 25 years as a marketing operator in B2B SaaS companies, so very much the types of companies that Norwest invests in. And I started out as an operating exec, which means that I leveraged those years of marketing experience to work shoulder-to-shoulder with our more than 200 active portfolio companies with the hope of giving them the scaffolding and the resources and the referrals and insights and business therapy that they need to become more successful faster. So I started there and then over time, expanded my role to take on the CMO duties and responsible in that function for driving the brand strategy for the firm, elevating our investors, our portfolio services organization, and most importantly, the companies and the founders that we back. And I do want to note that you are
1: Norwest Venture Partners first CMO. So congratulations on that. I did take a look at the announcement around your appointment of CMO. And I did see that something stood out to me as an area that fell under a CMO, which was you are spearheading all of the ESG and DEI and i initiatives for mm-hmm. the firm. So talk to me about that, because I, I don't think traditionally that is where that lives.
0: I think the way it came about is if you think about like part of building our brand is emphasizing our values. Taking on the ESG and DEI work was a way to ensure that not only are we building future-proof companies as an organization, but we're attracting values-aligned founders, people who see have a similar worldview to our own. And so although Norris isn't an impact fund, you know, in our 60-year history, we've always believed in doing well by doing good, and we've been walking this talk for a long time, even before it was in vogue. And now we just have the opportunity to bring it into a public view and hold ourselves accountable to driving real change. And and I really believe big transformational change occurs from small yet consistent turns of the dial and creating a steady drumbeat of action to back up the words and your point of view. So I'm really proud of the work we're doing on the ESG and DEI front. And I'm having a great time just being a steward of this aspect, this differentiator for the Norwest brand.
1: Thank you for unpacking that for us. And last question before we dive into our topic is just a little more on Norwest. Why does the firm exist and what's your focus?
0: We are a global venture capital and growth equity firm. Got $12.5 billion in capital under management. And we invest in seed to growth stage companies in three sectors: enterprise, consumer, and healthcare. And as I mentioned, the global fund we make investments in the U.S., where we have offices, as well as India and Israel. There might be
1: some portfolio companies who are listening today. I hope so. We at Blast Media we do PR for B two B SaaS companies, and so we sort of ride. Interesting as an agency, ride the the SaaS investment landscape along with our clients uh, and sort of the changes to the market. So marketing teams saw a lot of volatility this year, riding super high in 2021. Very quickly, things changed in Q2. Fingers crossed, we're seeing an upswing now in Q3. But for marketers, many of them were faced with very drastic budget cuts, um, seemingly overnight. And it's interesting because you know my husband works in logistics. I work in marketing. Logistics never gets cut. That's it's never we need to ship less and we need we need to stop moving product. But marketing is looked at right away from as the you know, board or C suite of right. We have to cut
0: spend. So go to marketing. What are your thoughts around that? As marketers, and if you've been doing this long enough, we're used to this. Uh, it's just a natural and logical pattern, right? And any belt tightening situation, marketing is always the first place to look because not only do we have higher budgets relative to other departments, but we also have the most discretionary, like non-fixed line items. Uh, so, I mean, how many times have you been asked, or your listeners here have been asked, you know, well, tell me what what have we not committed to yet for this year or this quarter because that we could possibly back out of? I think this is a common situation that we find ourselves in, and the good news is, I think we all still have a lot of fresh memories from this deep, but luckily short-lived decline or downturn that we saw during COVID. And so I think, and I hope that most folks were going to feel good about their cost-cutting skills at this point, that those skills are current and those muscles are strong and they can apply them as needed in the environment that we're facing today.
1: Well, if you're not, if those skills are not sharp, or this is their first go around with it, what would be your advice as to the first thing a marketing leader should do? So you get out of a meeting, you're told we're reducing costs, you're impacted in your budget, whatever's cut by X percent. What's the very first thing you should do?
0: I'd say even before they come to you, be proactive. Follow the public and private markets, read the temperature and the vibe of what's going on in your company and get ahead of it. Don't wait for your CEO or your CFO to come looking for you, to give you a directive. Oh, hey, to rework the plan. I've fallen victim to this in the past. And it's, it's really a disempowering position to be in. And by definition, that puts you on your heels. You're on the defensive. And it also gives you a lot less authority to really drive the conversation. So... I said this before, and I say it even more now being in a VC and and growth equity environment is at any point in time, a marketer should be able to answer the following question off the top of their head, which is, if the board gave you an extra $100,000 tomorrow, how would you deploy those dollars? And I'm always surprised when marketers don't have an answer for this. It's grounded in a combination of past performance, strong rigor around metrics, and importantly, a strong relationship and alignment with the sales organization. What does the sales team get excited about? What kind of programs do they really lean into and they want to follow up on and chase after? In my time at Demandbase, that was something, that was probably one of my biggest lessons. We had such a strong sales and marketing alignment. And part of the reason we were successful is we came together, we got around the table, we ideated together at every step of the process. And so there was never a question of what action we wanted them to take. And what these campaigns were about and what they were in service to and what the key messages were, because they were at the table with us every step of the way. I'd say, know your data and be able to answer that question if a board member or the CEO came to you and said, hey, got some extra money, how are you going to spend it? And part of knowing that is knowing what's not working for you, what are your channels that are underperforming, where are you going to lean in so that the business starts to become more predictable As you put more money in the top, more money comes out the bottom.
1: On the flip side, then, should marketers be able to answer the opposite of that, which is should you always know if you're cut by 100000 where would you cut?
0: I think so. Yeah, because it's like knowing where you deploy extra dollars, by definition, assumes that you also know where you're going to pull dollars from because you have that strong commitment to metrics and performance tracking. As well as, and it's not just about the numbers, right? It's it's all about like what's the vibe in the sales organization and and like what are our customers saying? Let's get in front of them and find out and we can gather qualitative data to support what the dashboards are saying. Because I don't and and we could get a whole we could have a whole separate podcast about attribution, but I think there is a tendency for people, especially at the executive level, to lean into well, what can we measure? And therefore that must be where we should place our bets. And I would say that's not always the case. And and to me, it's taking a, a worldview coming at the situation from that different altitude to say, well, if I take into account the investments I've made, the performance data I have, some of my past experience, and a little bit of my gut, when you blend all those things together, when you munge them together, which I think is a technical term, then I think you get the best view of what's really going on in the business. Well, I, for
1: what I'm happy to hear you say that, that you should not pull all the spend out of non direct revenue generating strategies, uh, obviously, where PR and we play directly into brand, but that does happen. Where if we can't draw a line to ROI, then cut it. And you and I could, I'm sure, make the same argument all day long, which it is imperative from a brand and visibility and perception standpoint that we don't go dark. I mm-hmm. mean, it's debilitating for a business. To all of a sudden have the perception of like, well, this ship's sinking. They're nowhere to be found, right? Where they pull the plug on their events and their uh, other brand spend and their, maybe it's their social or they're you know, not making announcements. But unfortunately that does happen. How do you suggest making the case so, I mean, if, if you have a CEO who's very active in, or maybe it was be a CFO, but a CEO is very active in marketing, thinks they know marketing.
0: who I'm the marketer, Lindsay, don't you know that? If we have to
1: <laughs> cut anything that doesn't have a direct line of revenue, how do you combat that and make a case for keeping spend in other
0: areas? I think a couple of things. One, I think the zeitgeist could contribute. So, you know, podcasts are all the rage these days. And you wouldn't keep doing your podcast if you didn't believe that it was driving some benefit for your business. And luckily, a lot of people have that view right now. Everybody wants to get on the podcast bandwagon. So I think there's some tailwinds there that can help marketers make that case. I also think, and I referenced this a second ago, but just the qualitative inputs that you get and like whether it's comments and engagement you get via social, or you meet someone at a conference and they say, oh, I listened to that podcast and I really took a lot out of it. And then I told three friends. And even in my case, I developed a blog last year and a a webinar on how to gain the confidence of your board uh, as a marketer and put it out there and not much happened. So I figured, oh, whatever, maybe, you know, that wasn't a hot topic. And then like a year later, one of our portfolio leaders who was new in the seat, was obviously trying to put her best foot forward. And she said, oh, yeah, I was getting ready for my first board meeting. And I Googled how to get the confidence of your board and your blog came up. And she's like, I couldn't believe it. And it's not even like she went to nvp.com to look for that. She just Googled it. My blog came up and she was like, wow, this is a home run. I love Norwest. Norwest understands what I need and they deliver it. And, oh, I'm a huge fan. So something like that, you can't measure. But it's such a powerful experience that she had and that she relayed back to me and gave me confidence that was a worthwhile undertaking. That's great advice. So companies that
1: you are helping, your portfolio companies, all shapes and sizes, but I do want to focus really more on the, maybe it's the smaller companies with the leaner marketing budgets. Maybe they have a marketing leader. Maybe they don't. Maybe that falls maybe under more sales and revenue. But what general advice do you have when you, you have a lean marketing budget on how to distribute that budget in a way that's going to have maximum value. And I'm saying value over ROI. Is again, believer that not all, all marketing investments need direct ROI. So how do you distribute and allocate that lean budget in the areas that make the most sense for a, a smaller business at that time?
0: I think the first part is to try to determine, is this the right budget to start with? Notwithstanding how I'm going to distribute it, but do I have the right number in front of me? And that's something I see a lot in our portfolio where companies will come to me and say, hey, you know, here's what our budget is. Like, is this too much? Is this too little? You know, how does this compare to our peers? So that's sort of the first question I like to answer is like this, even the right amount. So over the last couple of years, I've been benchmarking marketing investment across our venture and growth equity portfolios. And I've zeroed in on a, a couple of vectors that our companies can anchor to. And trying to determine if uh, am I above the line or below the line. So looking at like ARR multiple versus total budget, you know. So for example, if your new ARR plan for the year is ten million dollars, and your total marketing budget, including headcount, is three million, then your multiple is three point three x, which would be in line with what I would hope to see in general. I like to see ARR multiples in like three to five x territory. But that's not hard and fast because your company might be in high growth mode or you might have a lower velocity sales model. And that's so this might not pencil. And so that's why I like to consider other vectors, too, so that people can triangulate and get a sense at the end of the day. Oh, I think we're in about the right territory. So I also look at program spend as a percent of gap revenue. And. Here, I like to see about 5% in the growth equity portfolio, about 7% for VC backed companies. And again, you can marry this with the first to see, oh, you know, my above the line, below the line. And generally speaking, if you're above the line on all, you're probably in good shape. If you're below the line on all, maybe you need to take an, another look. And then finally, the breakdown of headcount versus program spend. I used to see in the last probably 10 years, it was. Trending at like 50 50. When I think about the previous B2B SaaS companies I I worked in as a marketing operator, I've seen it, and I'd be curious to compare notes with others. Certainly in our portfolio, I've seen it trend more towards 60 40. And I think the reason for that is so 60 in, in the camp of program. And I think it's companies are more and more relying on contract workers because not only of uncertainty around the budget but uncertainty around how their business is going to perform and what needs that they might have in terms of talent in the organization, what they might need today might look like, smell like, be something different 18 to 24 months later, and they don't want to turn over that headcount. I think a lot of reasons why I'm seeing that trend, but I think as I speculate, those are the ones that make most sense to me.
1: Do you find that there is
0: a certain discipline that tends
1: to perform well in a contract role? Are these creatives demand gen content? Do do you you see success more in one area over
0: another? I have a tendency to believe that if the inevitable time comes, you know, or the unfortunate time comes that you have to make cuts, for example, or even if you're looking ahead, like, what am I going to hire full time versus what am i going to outsource my tendency and i'd be curious to hear your point of view Lindsay is that you should outsource the things that are like highly specialized and or that are that change frequently like digital is a great example you know what's true today in terms of digital best practices is not going to be true 3 months from now and do you really want to invest in trying to keep up with that changing landscape or do you want to place your bets by outsourcing it to an agency that that's what they specialize in, is mm-hmm. staying up to date and they're agile and they can lead the market. Same thing on the ops side. I think you know it's very specialized, probably really expensive to bring an ops resource in-house and they're not as versatile potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I like the idea of, in terms of headcount investment, and I don't want to say generalists, but folks that do a lot of different things and they're smart and they're Agile and they can pivot, and then the things that are more specialized, communications or ops or digital, could be outsourced, and you yeah. can program budget for those. And
1: I agree with you, and and I even think of it too. And this is more specific to, to like our work, but I think of it too from a industry or vertical specific person where if they if we need someone who has deep experience in conversational analytics, or maybe it's in the life sciences realm. Even though we work across all B2B staffs, we have all different industries that we touch. And so having deeper experience in a specific vertical or industry is tough to hire full-time for because we may have a client or two clients potentially that touch that space, but the chances of us being able to fill, you know, full-time and also to be able to learn deeply all those different industries. So it also just throwing there more of the industry or, or vertical specific knowledge as well. That's a great point. I like that. And along the the lines of the the contract workers, something I'm seeing a lot more of right now is the fractional CMO. Mm -hmm. That the availability of an appetite for fractional CMOs is heightened now more than they've ever seen it. So we wanted to get your thoughts on it. Do you agree? Are you seeing that as well? And what do you think is driving that?
0: I am seeing it. And I think sort of like this, there's two sides of that marketplace. There's the talent marketplace where I find folks, they get to a certain point in their career, the more senior they become, they're less inclined to want to take an operational role for various reasons, maybe because there's sometimes a lot of uncertainty that goes along with it. As we know that the tenure, the average tenure for a CMO is, what is it, like 18 to 24 months, something like that? It's getting lower and lower. lower. Gosh, we could have a whole other podcast about (laughs) what that is, right? So I think the talent side, it's like, hey, I want to de-risk. I want to spread the love. I want to context switch and work with a lot of different folks. And I can see the appeal there for sure. And I feel that every day in my job because I work with of 20 portfolio companies in a month. And so my pattern recognition is accelerated. My learning is accelerated. I have access to more data sets. I feel like, oh, I've learned more in the last two years than I learned in the previous 10. So I think that's appealing for talent. In terms of why the companies want to do that, I think it speaks to a point I made a second ago is they don't know their needs are going to be shifting so much. Like what you need today as a startup, like in a series A enterprise SaaS company is not the same profile. You know, when you start scaling um, past 100 million, that is a completely different profile of talent than when you're at 10 million, 20 million. And so perhaps these founders and CEOs want to be able to evolve, you know, as their, their growth trajectory shifts. And I, and this is based
1: on CMOs that I've spoken with here over the last 30 days, but this has held true for the last few years. The CMO role sucks like it is the hardest shittiest (laughs) c-suite job because you have you touch so much and you're responsible for so much and when things are right people look at you and things are wrong people look at you and focus so much on the marketing part of the doing part but really you're the owner of the market like there's no bigger more responsible role but it's a hard 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 job and I do think that CMOs are getting tired of it and are more gun-shy to commit I think so. fully to an organization, say, I'm not doing this again. I'll maybe give you six months and then maybe we'll see if there's a fit. Actually, I know a couple of CMOs that turned CEOs, went to other companies were CEOs, and they have said that it the CMO role was harder by far. That A CEO role, it's not that it's not hard, it's hard in different ways but not as much of a pressure cooker as the CMO role. I couldn't
0: agree more, Lindsay. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. And maybe one of the drivers of that too, and we talked about this, we joked about it a little bit earlier, but I think everyone fancies themselves a marketer and they all think they can do it. We're good at marketing because we make hard things look easy and therefore people assume it's easy. So everyone's in your business, everyone's got an idea they had in the shower that day that they want to bring to you, that they expect you to execute on. Meanwhile, you have all these other priorities and then you have to adjudicate that and it gets exhausting. I think that too is a big driver that like it's a tough job and everyone thinks they can do it and that your job's so easy, but you wouldn't say that to a product person. You wouldn't walk into their office and say, or a CFO and say, hey, you know what? I think we need to like remodel all this and, oh, and like, here, did you think about adding these three things to the roadmap? Like you wouldn't do that. But people think nothing of marching into a CMO's office, which, you know, I use in air quotes these days and telling them all the things that they need to prioritize next.
1: Yes. And why didn't we, why don't we have those t-shirts that we had at our thing last year? Like, <laughs> like the t-shirts. <laughs> why t-shirts? are we doing more email campaigns? This is not to say that no one should be a CMO. There are wonderful CMO roles. You have one with, with a fantastic company, but I've heard enough horror stories about the difficult road that is the one that the CMO walks. I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier, which is before you even get into this, the discussions with your portfolio companies of how to distribute the budget is, do they have the right amount? Do you find that when you come to them with the data to say across the board, companies of your size, this is what they're spending? Does that resonate? I mean, most of the time, do they say, oh, okay, we'll allocate more? That's
0: a great question. And I think because at Norwest, we our whole philosophy is grounded in taking an invited guest approach with our companies, even though we have a control position on the growth equity side very often, obviously not the case on the VC side, but we definitely consider ourselves invited guests. Like We're not here to tell them what to do, be prescriptive. Here, you need to execute our playbook. And that's just one of our brand promises. And so in our case, we... We'll go to them, we'll have the data, you might be a little above the line and a little below the line and then it just kicks off a conversation. So I'm not there to direct their efforts or to say, well, you know, you need to cut or actually you're understanding as much as to give the data and then start the conversation of like, well, what are the considerations here? And why, why might we be above the line? Well, because of this reason or that reason, but I just want them to have the ammunition to be able to have the rationale for their number versus, well, here's the number the CFO gave me, so I'm going with it. Sure. I think the marketer has a a right and maybe even a responsibility to have the conversation with the CEO and the CFO to determine what that number should be. But yeah, they don't always. As an example, I recently worked with a portfolio company that was considering. They'd been recruiting for a role on the marketing team for a while. But the downturn, the question became, should we continue to lean in here? Should we go forward with this hire or should we not? So I ran the numbers for them and it was like, maybe a little above the line. And so maybe put the hire on hold and then you can reevaluate in a few months. And it wasn't so much that I gave a directive or made a suggestion, but it was obvious to them too. And it made their decision a lot easier because I think they were on the fence. When you think about...
1: All the companies that you you're invited, right? You want to be an invited participant. But those that you help, do you see a common, I guess, mistake rise to the top when you think about? Is there a common mistake that you see most portfolio companies make when you first dive in and and take a look at their marketing strategy?
0: More broadly, or with respect to budget, you can answer it any way you want. There is, (laughs) and this is not just our unique to our portfolio. This aligns with my experience over the past 25 years, I think companies tend to have, they often or sometimes have underdeveloped investment in in operations. Setting that foundation is it's very tempting and quite honestly, intoxicating to start generating leads. Every sales leader wants leads. Every CEO is like, we got to get the pipeline rolling. And that's all true and before you do that it's important to lay the foundation so that you can measure what you're ultimately doing too often i see companies like just run right toward the lead gen programs and campaigns and we got to put lots of stuff in the top of the funnel and then they're surprised a couple of years later when sales is pulling a set of reports that doesn't match what marketing's pulling and then they're fighting about well who's doing what and who's driving this pipeline and revenue. And then as they look under the hood of the data, they realize, oh yeah, we didn't, we're not really tracking this the way we need to be by creating a lead lifecycle and creating the fields we need to track conversion and velocity through the funnel. And then they find that they have to backtrack and try to re-architect something that could have or should have been built from the beginning.
1: What are other tools that you recommend as those initial software investments to help with connecting the data tracking analytics etc
0: of course you know salesforce a crm solution a lot of companies are leaning into hubspot all your you know google suite and one of the questions i get a lot because of my background four years at demandbase is well when do we buy an abm solution And this is always a tricky one for me because obviously I'm a a fan, I see value in investing in in account-based marketing. I also think it can be tempting to convince yourself that you are executing ABM if you purchase an ABM solution. So I always caution our companies and work side by side with them to let's establish your foundation, your basic strategy, create sales and marketing alignment, figure out Let's get alignment around an initial criteria for your list and then maybe start to operationalize some of that and build the muscle around ABM before you invest in a solution. And I think you could fill in the blank, apply it to any solution that you might invest in. could be PR tracking, right? It could be social tracking. Just make sure you're leading with strategy and that you don't convince yourself that if we buy this tool, then we will be executing a certain type of program or initiative. One of the first things I did when I went to Lucidworks as a VP of marketing was to look under the hood to see what's the tech stack look like and are we over-invested and was able to cut about $300,000 a year out of the tech budget. Not because I thought that they wouldn't be useful tools down the road, but they didn't match our maturity as a marketing organization. Our uber topic here is budget and how to conserve. My advice to companies would be to resist the temptation to go out and buy a tool to do X, Y, Z until you really need it, until you're ready to man it, to maintain, to stand it up, to maintain it in a way that is going to maximize your use and value of it.
1: And I want to underscore this idea of overbuying tools for your tech stack, because I do also see a bit of FOMO happen where... There's marketers sitting at conferences and they see that these you know, massive publicly traded companies are using this tool, this tool, this tool. And like, what well, they're using, it. I should be using it. Yes. But like, the enterprise cloud often solutions are not what your business needs right now. The total cost of ownership is crazy because of the implementation and the consulting. And then you're only using a 10% of all of the bells and whistles. So you don't have the infrastructure and team built out. Yes. Uh, and as a result, right, you are left with all of this software that you're either not using or only using a portion of it when you could have bought something that was really more right size your business. So I'm underscoring that because if you if you're in a budget cut situation, you could potentially look at your stack and find ways to reduce spend there as opposed to reducing spend on programs that are actually working for you.
0: And if I may, one of our portfolio companies, productive, that's what they specialize in is fast management and keeping track of all your technology investments and when do they renew who's using them what value are we getting out of them because those things could easily get out of hand and certainly I discovered this when I did the audit at lucidworks is I was new to the company so I'd say well who's using this and who's using that and you you can imagine a lot of shrugged shoulders like I didn't even know we had that (laughs) right (laughs) I've actually had Rajmi from Productive,
1: uh, their CMO on this show. That's right. She was on here. And her topic was the first 30 days as a CMO, things you should know. And it was her role at Productive. So that is coming full circle. I love it. I love it. Well, Lisa, this has been a great discussion. As I end every episode, I ask all of our guests if they could
0: send us out with their favorite or signature toast. Well, I've just made this one up on the spot, Lindsay, but it seems to ring true in, in how I go about the work I do, but it's um, stay curious and always be learning, be a learner, not a knower. Oh, love that. I <laughs> that.
1: Thanks again to Lisa for joining me on SaaS Half Full. We took this conversation a few directions. Hopefully you found some value in it. I always appreciate the listen. Uh, Please subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined.
0: But until next time, bottoms up.